1: I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Silk. It's a luxury fabric, a valuable trade good, and a scientific marvel. This material, created by the Bombix Mori Silkworm, has captivated artisans for centuries. And it also captivated science presenter and writer Arati Prasad, who was studying the scientific potential of silk for new treatments. Vast Arturati on a journey to explore the world of silk, not the traditional silk we use today, but all its different varieties. Wild silks, made from less famous moths, sea silks, made from mollusks, and spider silk, strong yet significantly more difficult to harvest. This all comes together in her latest book, Silk, A History in Three Metamorphoses. Arati Prasad is a writer, broadcaster, and researcher interested in the intersection of science and technology with cultures, history, health, and the environment. She is also the author of In the Bonesetter's Waiting Room, Travels Through Indian Medicine, which was about health and disease in modern India. And, Like a Virgin, How Science is Redesigning the Rules of Sex, which explored the history and future of reproduction. Arati has a PhD in genetics from Imperial College London and is an honorary research fellow at University College London's Department of Genetics, Evolution, and Environment. Today, Arati and I explore this world of silk in all its forms and why silk may be the hottest new material in biotechnology today. So, Arati, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about your book, Silk, A History in Three Metamorphoses. Um, you know, perhaps it's best to start with uh the traditional uh silk, um, which I know your book isn't isn't really about. Um, but how is silk at least kind of the the standard version of it that we all know and mostly use today? How is that kind of silk made and what made it so prized in the ancient world?
2: Yeah, there's the silk that most of us will have at home or will buy in a shop, say if you bought a silk shirt is predominantly of one type, and it is made by an insect called the Bombix mori. And the Bombix mori didn't exist past about 4000 years ago, and that's because it was sort of genetically engineered by farmers in, in ancient China. And that's a process of selective breeding where they took a wild ancestor called the Bombix mandarina moor. It was um, beautifully colored, very uh, dark, well camouflaged. It flew very fast. Um, And from that, they created over time by um, selective breeding, which means they were looking for the properties of the insect that would best suit them, for example, that it created bigger cocoons to have more silk. So this insect that we have today, the Bombix mori, it's colorless. It can't fly to any great degree it can flap its wings a bit they can't go anywhere it's the only completely domesticated insect that we have and it's completely dependent on humans even for basic things like mating um and reproducing and being fed so this moth uh that well the 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 moth develops in a process called complete metamorphosis and that means it starts life as a tiny caterpillar so it hatches from the egg very tiny caterpillar kind of dark purpley color and then it eats copious amounts of mulberry leaves so white mulberry leaves are its natural food um, plant and it grows sort of exponentially um and then at some point it stops it stops eating it stops moving and it wraps itself in a cocoon because If an insect stops, and it's a very juicy caterpillar by that time, it's subjecting itself to great dangers, both from predators who might want to eat it, but also from infections like bacteria and fungi. And so it wraps itself in a cocoon, and this cocoon is made of silk. And the silk is produced in long tubules that run along the the length of the caterpillar's body. And it's a liquid and it emerges from the salivary glands. And when the liquid hits the air, it solidifies into a thread. And so it wraps itself in this cocoon and within a uh, the cocoon of the Bombyx Mori, which is about maybe four or so five centimeters long, um, is contained about a kilometer of silk thread. The thread's very, very fine. It's about a thousand times thinner than a human hair, but it's also extremely strong. And because it needs to protect itself, it also has uh, antibacterial, antifungal properties. So when the um insect stops developing um as a larval form it wraps itself in the cocoon what happens there is it starts developing into its adult form but at this point people who produce silk take that cocoon the insect's not allowed generally to develop into an adult because In the natural process where the um, moth breaks out of the cocoon, it vomits uh, an enzyme called cocoonase, and that has a kind of dark red color. So number one, it would stain the cocoon, but more importantly, it breaks the thread, you know, that one kilometer of of, uh, continuous thread, which means Mm. that when you try to weave it, you'll have to knot it and it um, affects the sort of smooth uh, sheen and the quality of the silk that you'd get from it. So in order to prevent that, the cocoons are routinely, um, with with the pupa, so the insect um, stage of development inside, is either stifled or boiled, which isn't very nice. Um, But then the uh, cocoons, which contain um, quite a lot of silk, are boiled and they're boiled with an alkali so something like soap and the um that unreels the, the the silk strands from the cocoon the cocoon actually feels very hard it's, you actually wonder if there's any thread in there at all because it fe- feels like um i don't know like a papier mache or something but if you boil it it unreels and several cocoons the strands from several cocoons are taken together pulled out and made into um, a, a reel of thread and that's how the thread is made, and then that thread is weaved on looms into into the products that we wear today.
1: Right, but your book is not actually about traditional or or the kind of the the version of silk that we that we know when we buy in shops. Your book's about all the other kinds of silk. Um, so why write about about these other like the, the other versions of this fabric? Um, what is it about? Uh, wild silk, or sea silk, or spider silk—that made you want to write a book about them.
2: I am. I like writing about things that are less known or. Or understood or are kind of surprising and I grew up um, with my my mother's family's Indian and I, I remember when I was about 10 years old I was walking in a little village in South India and I looked into a house and there was a family including children my age weaving on a hand loom so this is a wooden frame where the threads go warp and weft and they're weaving this silk um, fabric and in, in, in it they were gold threads and it was the kind of thing my mother and aunts always wore that I wore um to my 21st birthday these beautiful um productions and I, I I never thought really beyond that about what this fabric was and where it came from and I'd always assumed that there was only one type of silk and that silk came from China because that's that's what the popular story says and I first came to well, wanting to find out more about silk through science because I found out that silk was being used in laboratories for technological application. And that really surprised me, not so much in the medical sense, because in ancient China and India and Greece, doctors did use silk for sutures, for example. They still do um because it's a natural animal protein a biological material it can be made to not raise an immune response from the human body but it heals seamlessly into the body um in uh, there's a, a shakespeare um uh, book i don't remember which one it is exactly um but there's a mention of a spider web a cobweb being used to put onto womb, wounds so um we, we we always knew that it was used in medical applications but they were, they were now talking about the holograms or sensors or human electronic interfaces or implantable surgical materials that were natural that could be told when to self-destruct and so not leave any implant like a metal hip replacement in the body and instead replace it with our own cells. So there were all these manner of things. And then as I spoke to scientists more, they started talking about silk. You know, which makes a lot of sense. It's a natural biological material as being a very um, appropriate alternative to the plastics that are really causing um, our world a problem because. When you produce silk from from mulberry trees, for the the, the um, silk moths in China, they eat uh, mulberry leaves, the carbon locks into the trees, and then you produce the silk from them and the carbon locks into the fabric. But you can also, if you threw it away, it would biodegrade naturally. It would do the same thing in the body. They were trying to use it as alternative for plastics because we know very well how to make plastics. So that's bags and cups. But also electronic waste is a massive problem. And the scientists were making these um, um, electronics uh, from, silk um as well as implants in the body and that sort of thing so that's how i first came to it um- and then I saw, I went to the Natural History Museum in London, and I started looking at silks. I started um, looking at the types of silks there were, and all of these cocoons from all over the world started falling out of drawers, and they were from India and Africa and all over Europe and um, the Americas. And I thought, what, what, what are these? We're, I've never heard of these. How, why are these here? And some of them had um Victorian writing on them and tags that said things like Paris Exhibition, seventeen ninety eight, and sorry, 1878 to 19th century exhibitions, which were the great colonial exhibitions where the European powers brought um, anything of economic importance. So that's plants um, and insects and trees um, and um, anthropological objects and displayed them. And so here were these objects, and I was wondering where they came from. And then when I started speaking to scientists more, they started telling me that, you know, actually... As I mentioned, the kind of clothes that we wear, um, the silk that we're familiar with, and a lot of the applications that um, scientists have been working on uh, for for technological applications for silk are from the Chinese silk moth. But because the Chinese silk moth was domesticated, I mean, genetic studies have not been able to conclusively validate exactly how old, how long this goes back, but taken together with archaeological evidence, it it looks like it's about 4,000 years old. Um, At that time, um, there's also evidence that silk was being made in, in other parts of the world. And and these silks were not domesticated or not entirely domesticated. And I'm talking about wild silk moths. So in China, wild silk still kept on being used. It is still being used. Um, The ancestor of the Chinese moth actually spread across the Himalayas and to the foothills of the Himalayas into the west towards um, India um, and West Asia. And they continue to face the challenges of the environment and infections that the Domesticated moth didn't have to face because they were kept in human care, and that means that the silk that they created have different properties. Not just different properties, but you can see that they look different. The cocoons are uh, um, heavier, they're thicker. They. When I first saw a wild silk fabric, I didn't believe that it was silk. I had to ask the person in the shop several times, what is this? I thought it was a cotton, a heavy cotton. Um, and so they can be quite thick, quite thick. They're actually used in the winter, they're passed down for generations, they're very sturdy. And these um, different types of silks have different applications um, in technology because of that strength. So I should say, I mentioned that. Um, The silk moth silk is a thousand times thinner than a human hair, but it has an extreme, uh, extremely strong um, tensile strength and elasticity. Um, And so um, you saw it being used in in technological applications for a long time. I think people didn't, it it didn't go unnoticed that this was a very strong material. Chinggis Khan uh, issued his soldiers with um, a thin silk vest um, instead of heavy body armor that had to do with um, them, missile arrows when you know an arrow goes into your body it's not nice but what's worse is when you have to take the arrow out and as the arrow would go into the silk shirt the silk would wrap around the arrowhead making it easier to extract but also the silk fibers could meld into the wound of the person and 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 it does help um wound healing and later in the
1: yeah i mean I. I'm jumping ahead in your book a lot, but then this is exactly the same sorts of things that people discover when it comes to uh, silk's bulletproof properties.
2: Yeah, exactly. So in the 19th century... um... Gun crime became. I mean, it still is a problem, but it became a, a growing problem in in the Wild West of America. There was a doctor called Goodfellow, and he um had he set up a a, a surgical practice above a saloon, so a bar. Um, there were lots of fights down there, so he had a um, prime, um, you know, front row seats to this. You know, rushed down and would find things and did tests when he saw it because he couldn't quite believe it that men who were wearing thick woolen felted hats or thick denim clothing it would make no difference to the bullet and yet when the bullet would go through a, a, a silk handkerchief that was placed in their pocket folded several times the bullet was not able to penetrate through 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 the body and he um, started doing tests on this and so many people throughout the centuries after that had been using um silk uh, testing silk and even the royal armories tested um the the type that um franz ferdinand was probably um who, it is rumored that he had and didn't wear on the day that he was assassinated so that's not in it seems bizarre because we think of silk as a very fine fabric um but um the properties it has it it's just extraordinary and and you asked you know what um why i started writing about um silk and different types of silk i think silk is such a unique material because it's such an ancient Fabric, it's such an ancient, it's been in use for so long. It continues to be in use. And it has this incredible technological future. And I think there are very few of any um, objects that we could that we could say uh, the same for. So I was talking about silks from around the world. So as I started looking at silks in the Natural History Museum, I started reading about the history and archaeology. And there's a an archaeologist and textile expert at Harvard called Irene Good. And Dr. Good um she said, you know, if you're looking, if you're looking in China and you're excavating and you find a fabric or a thread, of course, you're going to check to see if it's silk. But if you find that same thread in Mexico or Cameroon or India or, or anywhere else, you probably wouldn't. Why would you? But that's exactly what she did. And she found um, some objects at the Boston um, Museum of Fine Arts that were from the Indus Valley Civilization, and she tested the silk and looked at the shape of the silk, because silk threads from different moths are unique, and the different animals, in fact, that I've written about are unique in their shape um, and the size, and it depends on the orifice of the animal uh, from which it emerges, and she found that the ones in India had come from several different types of wild moths, um, and that it wasn't just about the fact that this was a parallel time. So the time that silk has started being used in China, it, there's now evidence that it was also being used in India, but that the technology that everyone thought and says was so secret of the degumming, the not, not just the fact of we can produce silk, but how do you prepare it in order to make a garment out of it was used, was practiced on the, on the silk caterpillars from India um and they were probably also stifled like the chinese moths were because the silk was a continuous thread and not um and not um you know like the wild silk or the peace silk, silk where the moths were allowed to escape so um you know in the people use silk in different ways. In the Pacific, they'd use whole cobwebs or take a part of the web of uh, of a spider so as not to disturb the ecology and the natural habitat of the spider, which of course can re- rebuild, but it's about respect for, for the natural world. Um, death shrouds were made from wild moth silk in Madagascar and different parts of, of Africa as well. So there's a long, long tradition and it's um, very international. But the thing about spider silk, it it, it 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 spider silk has always been the holy grail of of technology. So these are scientists who've been studying um silks, and this is you know going back to the seventeenth um, uh, century in Europe. Uh, there were scientists; these these new scientific societies started to be be formed, and people were testing all sorts of things. Um, and a lot of people were amateurs, but entomology and natural history was something that. There was a great interest for. Um, and scientists suggested that, you know, you know, one of the big problems about um, domestication, or another way to put it, is inbreeding, is that diseases emerge and the animals are less able to protect themselves from parasites. And so the, the domesticator, the Chinese silk moth as it went across Europe, started sickening. And alternatives, alternatives were being sought. And so They suggested, you know, picking up spider webs and try to create um, small garments. They only ever succeeded in achieving small garments um, out of it, out of spider silk. And that's because spiders are extremely uncooperative. You can domesticate a moth. But spiders are not. First of all, they're they're, um, they're cannibalistic. So, uh, when um, a large object was finally created about ten years ago from the Madagascar golden orb spider, the creators of it, Simon Peers and Nicholas Godley. Um, took about two million spiders um, in eight years, because at first women, Malagasy women would go out and collect spiders in a big basket. And Simon said, but they'd come back and there'd just be one very happy looking spider left in the basket. And so um, the question of um, the difficulties of using certain silks is is the ability to get quantities of it. And over time, In different places over time in different places strange contraptions started being invented where you would immobilize a spider and extract the silk directly from its abdomen which they really didn't like and you can release them afterwards and then sort of silk them again um but that it wasn't a very um efficient system uh and that
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
1: Did they ever figure out... They never figured out how to do this economically, right? It was always very expensive and requiring lots of... A lot of inputs, I guess the word would be, as in like just keeping them all fed with flies and stuff. They never figured out how to make this economical, right?
2: No, and, and they still really haven't. But, but what's what's astonishing is the creativity that's gone into this. So um, not long ago, there's a, there's a um, there's a, a scientist in America called um, Randy Lewis, and he. Uh, Also, I think um, he was working with a lab that also tried to extract spider silk in in the old way, but then started making um, genetically modified organisms. To ask them the more cooperative ones like E. coli bacteria or yeast. So the yeast that we make beer with, they they multiply very rapidly. So if you put some spider silk genes into them and ask them to create a spider silk for us, they will create something like it. That none of them were very successful. So then he created the first mammal that had spider silk genes in it, and that was known as spider and um, spider goat. So <laughs> When you milked it, the spider silk would come out in the in the milk. Um, none of these things are great because he only used a small part of the spider silk um, gene, so it would only produce a part of the protein. But remember the the spiders the spiders are really quite amazing. They make many types of silk for different purposes to wrap their eggs in, to make their webs, um, to drop down from, and they have different properties. But it comes out as a solid like the like the like the silk it, it's not a liquid so if you're creating a liquid and then you have to try and fold it into a, a thread you have to guess how that's done and you know it's it's often said what um what a spider has been able to do on a on a diet of bugs has you know evaded scientists and technologists and that's still the case so the the latest thing he's done is um is use the bombix mori silk Silkworm. <laughs> so he's genetically engineered. He said, you know, look, we've been using this for 4000 years. So why not put the spider silk jeans into them and let them make the thread? Of course, it'll have a part. It'll be parts um, silkworm and parts um, spider silk um, fabric. Um, but yeah, I mean, have, I mean, some people have been so, uh, successful. The In the Second World War, uh, both silk moths and spiders were co-opted and conscripted by the militaries in various places. The Nazis... Um, very interestingly tried to use the silkworm as a model for eugenics which is so deeply flawed because as I said they're deep, they're very inbred and another word for inbred is racially pure or pure, genetically pure and they got very sick and so he sent them to schools um, you know the, the Nazis sent them to schools as well as mulberry trees they planted mulberry trees everywhere um, and they used the worms to teach children about the value of, you know, if this animal is sick, then, you know, they should die. They shouldn't be, you know, they shouldn't be a part of society. Um, but the reason they did that was to create parachutes and they wove it in such a way that the, the silk parachutes were fire retardant. And so you had situations where, um, people would look up into the sky, like there was a battle in Heraklion and Crete and you see thousands of these silk parachutes coming down and people were forbidden to touch them. But of course, after the war was over and the Nazis were defeated, the women um, in Crete, who also had a, a local wild silk um, industry and Chinese silk industry for, for hundreds of years, uh, picked up the parachutes and made wedding dresses and handkerchiefs and scarves out of them. With the spiders, spider silk is incredible for so many reasons, but it's extremely fine. Yeah. Um, mm. And even stronger than moth silk. And um, it is said that if the spider was the size of a human, then the web it creates could stop a jetliner in its path. It's extremely strong, but the fineness of it was also used for another purpose in crosshairs. Crosshairs are what you mm-hmm. use in the fineness of military um, equipment, it can also be used in medical equipment. And there was a woman called Nan Songa in California, and, and she Um, loved spiders as a child but as part of the war effort she started collecting black widow spiders and silking them so milking them for their threads um and the american military used to come to her house with a briefcase handcuffed to them and pick up the the silk that she'd been able to produce so it was enough for some purposes after the war she made it for medical equipment um but you know i also you know wanted to say that it's um silk is it's very sustainable and because this is the other thing about looking at wild silks and not just at the domesticated silk is they exist in their natural habitats across the world so everywhere Mm -hmm. and that means that if if people had silk industries or if silk industries were recreated in countries that had them or or lost them um where they could be revived in order to in order to grow um, silk moths and silk worms, you need trees. You need the natural habitats of those places. Um, one of and and so it's it's a very and it, as I said, it locks carbon. And if if you, we can find a way to make um, you know la- less water use, use natural dyes, for example, that's fantastic. Um, the problem with the domesticated silk or uh, in semi-domesticated silks that they use in India, where the moths are killed, um, it's it's not. Which is not uh, really um, ideal. However, in terms of sustainability, there was an interesting case where um, uh, Professor Neri Oxman, she was at MIT Media Lab, and she created uh, giant sort of architectural scaffolds. And she didn't extract the silk from the silk worms, instead, she created these. Like they looked like um, sort of rounded scaffolds, different shapes. Thinking about sustainable building materials, right? And she put thousands of silkworms on the structure, and they went ahead and built it for her. So um, yeah, there are ways of using silks as long as the animals um, are, are present, and it can be done in a, in a in a more sustainable and compassionate way. One of the my my very favorites. Um, organisms that i had no idea about before i started writing this book is is um is actually a mollusk it's neither a it's neither a spider nor nor a moth and this one lives in the mediterranean sea the problem with this of course is it's um critically endangered because of climate change the mediterranean's heating it's getting hotter and with the heat, it's a lot of um infectious organisms that have wiped its population or pushed it right to the brink. And this um mollusk, it's kind of like, you know, the blue mussels you might eat. Um the um they have a little thread at the end and they use use that to anchor themselves onto surfaces so this is a version of the mo- of the, the kind of mollusk that's about it can grow up to a at all and it sends out these um threads it doesn't spin them it blow moles them so it sends it out and it um, anchors itself into the sediment of the Mediterranean Sea and those um mollusks because they're so big they create a lot of, they, they there's a lot of meat in them and people have been fishing them for millennia and probably also weaving them for millennia, because when you take them out for meat, the meat tastes disgusting, apparently. Um, the Romans described it as a diuretic. So I think only people who couldn't afford what? anything yeah, would eat it because it's quite a lot, like a kilo or something in there. And then the the, the hairs would be there, the sort of, it look, it's kind of, it would grow as long as, you know, if a person had a bob haircut, that's how long it would be, so quite long. And it's really a wonderful color. It changes in the light from gold to bronze to green. And it has been woven for, for a very long time. We're not really quite sure how long because it doesn't survive. The first real record that's believable was by a, a scientist in um, Hungary, but this was in the, I think, around the 1920s. And there's a place in Hungary that's called the Quincum, and it's one of the northernmost borders of the Roman Empire. And a lot of the soldiers were from North Africa. And they found several graves, and there were women who were mummified in the Egyptian style. And they opened this um, sarcophagus, and she was wearing a dress that he looked under the microscope, and he knew uh, he knew the difference between plant fabrics and animal fibers um, because that's what he studied. And this had a very um, a very characteristic linguine shape, like a flattened, rounded spaghetti. And uh, unfortunately, in the Second World War, the museum was bombed and, and the sample was lost. But um, that's the oldest recorded. After that, there are records of it being made in in Sicily and in the south of Italy. And where I went to see it in um, in Sardinia, on a small island called Sant'Antiocco, where people are still weaving old samples of it. You can no longer harvest it from the sea because it's endangered. What's interesting about this um, silk technologically, it's it's not like um spider silk or moth silk so spider silk and moth silk you know i was talking about putting it into the body well it's very similar to keratin collagen elastin so that's an abundant protein in the human body and the mammalian body um sea silk's not like that some so the muscles that you eat it, it is like a collagen the, the muscles that you eat it produces a little thread that's similar to collagen but the sea silk is quite unique it um it's more like a, a fiber that's in our in our muscles uh, that that is there oh. for contraction, but the great thing about it is it has self healing properties. You know, it self repairs so it's been trialed for things like fetal surgery where um you know can you imagine a fabric if you create something that's able to heal itself that <laughs> that in itself is wonderful for um technology and it's not the only um animal there's other there's a very funny shrimp like animal that um a scientist called professor Volrath, he studies spiders and anything really anything that produces uh, uh threads um at oxford university and this is um a shrimp-like animal, tiny, it's called um, c bonelli* And this doesn't blow mold, it actually spins a thread. And the thread that it spins is somewhere between the kind of cement that barnacles use to affix themselves to rocks and ship's hulls, between that and the strength of um, spider silk. Um, and that has adhesive properties. So how, you know, to create an ad- adhesive that works underwater as well. So I think looking at the natural world, um, there's this whole field of biomimicry trying to understand mm-hmm. what what can nature do that we really can't because in order to be more sustainable you know nature doesn't waste it recycles everything we've become past masters at throwing things away um and things that <laughs> don't degenerate or don't aren't biodegradable so you know the whole idea with this is i came to it thinking about this luxurious fabric I, got, I fell down a rabbit hole of the archaeology and the history, but then really started becoming in awe of all the animals across the world that make um, materials that are really quite um, extraordinary, not just extraordinary in the beauty of them, but in the properties that they have and in the way that we could learn from them and apply them um to to prevent further further you know destruction of our of our own world
1: so you know two two similar questions um the first i mean obviously you know sea silk uh was quite hard to make or well there were there weren't many people that worked with sea silk with climate change and environmental damage it's even rarer now you say you can't you can't harvest that silk anymore. Spider silk also, as you noted, extremely difficult to harvest and and to and and to produce economically. Are there can you are there still surviving garments either with sea silk or spider silk today that people can see? Um are there any left?
2: Oh yeah, no, plenty. Um there is um there is um a lady called Felicitas made a and she is in Europe, and she has made an online museum of sea silk. And she has been doing this, collecting um, photos of samples across the world. In Sardinia, I saw the most beautiful, large shawl um, made of it, golden in color. You know, the Chinese silk, it's one one thing that's really good about it is it takes dyes very easily. Wild silk's very hard to dye because of the um, sort of protein structure of, of one of the components of it. Um, but sea silk so I told you about the gold like golden color the golden orb spider has a natural golden color a lot of the wild moths also come in different colors that that's not a pigment that's a that's a kind of nanoscale particle that means it never ever fades and that's another um good uh, point for sustainability but uh, yeah I, I've seen them and they still retain the colors um um In them. There are, I mean, there are a lot of other um animals like the pinanobulus, the mussel that people eat across um East and Southeast Asia that are routinely thrown away. And I don't think the fibers are woven. But there are weavers in Sicily, I'm sorry, it's not Sicily in Sardinia now, who are sourcing um these um sea silks from the species that still are abundant. Um not you know also mindful that we don't want to wipe anything up but if they're being eaten and if they're being eaten sustainably then it's a shame to throw the the threads away um the spider silk and 2012 uh huge beautiful huge uh, shawls and textiles were made in madagascar by simon piers and they were exhibited in, in the uh, victorian albert museum in london you can see them online um And he tours them sometimes in different museums that is so bright gold the web is gold um uh it's and the web can be several meters across and those spiders are very abundant in madagascar his simon's son told me that yeah you see them everywhere in urban areas and and everywhere so um yeah they can they can still be collected and they can the the ancient objects can still be seen today
1: and, you know, similarly, same type of question, but but I expect the answer is very different. Um, when it comes to the to the wild silks, these kind of different um I guess you can call them the alternative silks. Um, if you wanted to be nonconformist and look for one of these alternative silk garments, um, where in the world can you find them? Where in the world can you buy uh, clothing made of these different silks today.
2: Well, they do make them in China. They use a uh, wild silk moth still. These these moths, you know, the the Bombyx Mori, the domesticated one, they're tiny. They're about, you know, maybe four centimeters or so across um and they're kind of colorless and don't really move and they're very boring the wild moths you'll see in china across asia across the world are kind of the size of a hand or two hands put together they they're wonderfully colored huge and uh and there are there is an industry in china um but also in india there are many different types of um wild silks that are still used And, and and you can buy the threads and you can um buy fabrics made off them so um you can you can look them up they're called um tasar which is t-a-s-a-r muga and eri they're very popular because they have different qualities so they are they're so robust they're passed down for generations you can wear them in the winter because they keep you warm um you know, when I've given talks about my book recently, so many people have come to me, Those are a scientist from Sudan and she said, you know, I had um, I had very bad eczema and my doctor told me to sleep on silk and wear silk and it disappeared. And someone else told me, oh, my daughter had rosacea and it went away. So um, I think people sort of have, have known anecdotally and, and and across the world worn these fabrics for different purposes. And yeah, you can, you can find them um, if you look up wild, wild silk textiles um some of them are semi-domesticated but the other good thing about them is that they do live in the wild their heart the cocoons are harvested from the wild and that means again that they live in forests and that means that the forests need to be preserved in order to continue the industry so it's it's um it's an industry that ha- has to respect the environment or it will no longer exist and so it's quite nice to to buy products that are made of of wild silk. Um and um they, yeah, they have a different texture to them because some like um peace silk you may have heard of. What happens is the cocoon's broken by the moth as it as it emerges, so the strands have to be tied together. So you get these little, very little bumps in them. And there've been debates throughout time. You know, there was a a Victorian man called Thomas Wardle, and he was knighted by Queen Victoria for services to silk because he really brought Indian silk uh well, wild silk from India um into the British market and figured out how to dye it in wonderful gem like colors uh, he called it and there was a um a scientific debate one day he was presenting his findings and he said oh you know but the Indians don't know how to make silk very well because the, the fiber the fabrics are quite um you know vernacular or rough mm-hmm. and another man stood up and said yes but um maybe that's the beauty of them because this was the time William Morris worked with Wardle too and learned how to dye with natural dyes for them Wardle was a chemist um and the whole mood at that time a little bit like now was like questioning you know is 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 factory made the best or is if this arts and crafts is 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 there something that we're losing by not making things by manufacture by, by, by hand um, and so you know there was also a call to look at the natural beauty of things do we what is this idea of perfection you know can we work with things without having to change them can we tread lightly <laughs> in the materials that we use so um, yeah if, if, if I am um, I think people also breed silkworms you can get them I got uh, bombix mori silkworms um eggs i I hatched at home and those you can get from pet shops because they use them to feed to reptiles but if you're curious it's the most wonderful thing to do to raise them at home and see how they spin it's really magical um and friends told me that they raised silkworms as a child and they fed them lettuce for example and the silk turned green or you know the carrots or um the best silk will come if the animals eat the plants that they that they're used to eating in their natural habitat. That means the mm. strongest, best quality. But they can eat other things and become other colors. So, um, you can, people do keep wild silk moths as well, which are very very impressive to look at. Uh, so, yeah, it's a wonderful thing to see. Yeah, and more and more important these days to understand where things come from and the value of them.
1: You I, mean, I, I think I think I'd like to I'd like to to end um by kind of coming back to maybe the 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 thing that got you started on this journey the first was kind of looking at the a lot of the kind of new scientific applications of silk um and so i guess to ask a to ask a a, a broad question kind of what's what's the future of silk where how are we going to see um Silk, whether it's the traditional kind or these alternatives um how are we going to see this being used more and more in um in the future of kind of science and technology
2: i and the thing that excites me most or, because i have a background in in biomedicine yeah. um is the medical and surgical applications for it so um a lot of these a lot of these things are in clinical trials so and and they're being tested and you know you can't yeah. really use them until they're safe to use that you know um, silk can integrate into your into your body so if it's something like um i don't know a part of your body that can be easily removed that's one thing but if it integrates deep inside and you have some kind of immune problem then that would be that would be terrible so it has to be tested really well having said that there has already been a treatment of, of um, vocal cord paralysis, um, and the professor who was working on this, uh, Fiorenzo Omenetto in Boston, he said that, you know, it was you saw people walking and not being able to speak and then coming out, having this silk-based implant to replace the vocal cords, and then they healed and were able to speak. So I think that's a space to watch. They're looking at making replacements for cartilage and bone and artificial blood vessels um so for example instead of putting a metal um hip replacement in you could 3d print a scaffold of silk and then take your own bone cells and see the scaffold that means put your cells on it and let them grow and so that the silk can dissolve and what you're left with is just your bone like genuinely your bone and not um, anything that didn't belong in you also looking at implantable dissolvable nuts and gears and bolts for surgery so I think that's all quite exciting because it's um it's uh it's a gentler way to 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 perform surgery and it's um natural biodegradable product. You know, medicine is extremely unsustainable. Um, you know, we saw that with COVID and the masks and all the equipment that we need. So anything that can be done to, to improve that is is wonderful. Also, in terms of med- medicine and delivery, we saw with COVID, one of the problems with vaccines, and we know that sending vaccines to parts of the world where it's difficult to store them in cold temperatures is the stabilization and silk has been used to temperature stabilized vaccines, penicillin, chemotherapy drugs for over a decade at the Mayo Clinic in America already. Um, So those things, I think I'll watch this space. They need to be tested for safety, but they will be with us. Um, The other things that are very exciting is the creation of um, biodegradable materials to replace the things that we use every day and throw away like bags and cups, Um, but also, the human electronic interfaces um that i was talking about oh yeah so there's sensors you can say you stuck a silk sensor on an apple and um you know it could track food waste but it's completely edible and safe to eat or my mother forgot to take her medication and there was a you you'd, you'd implant a sensor into the drug that would feed back to my app and tell me Mm -hmm. that she's taken it. Um, So um, Fiorenzo Omenotis said, um, you know, the fact that we start from a naturally based material drives us to put tech where tech normally doesn't go. And it brings biology and technology together. And I think that's um, what I find most exciting. I think all the scientists I've spoken to, you know, I came to them thinking about medical applications. And actually what they're all excited about is, is it the applications in sustainability um, and um, and for climate change? So I think that's really the space that they're working in now. It can be used as a fabric. We can make different kinds of fabrics for different, different um, purposes, but there's nothing exciting about that in terms of the form of, of a textile. Mm-hmm. You know, body armor is a textile. Um, yeah, it gets more exciting when we look at as I said, things that can self-heal. How 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 does this silk do that? And how can we do that in the body? Um, if we can't produce enough of it, um, we can learn, we can try to learn how the animal does it. Um, and try and replicate that ourselves. So either way, um understanding how silk's made, where it came, where it comes from, and the breath of um species that make it and how it's made the environmental um, challenges that these animals have to face and the solutions they've found, very much like the problems we have and the solutions we need to find. So I think that's the space that's that's most exciting and it's being worked on the most.
1: Oh, as you suggest, I will be watching that space too to see kind of what new, um, I guess, what new applications, ones that I never considered, I guess, um, for silk. I think that's a good place to end our conversation with Arati Prasad, author of Silk. Um, Silk, a history in three metamorphoses. Arati, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, number one, where can people find your work? And all of your work, not not just this book. And number two, uh, what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be?
2: Um, yeah, so, I mean, my books are... It's, it's, They're definitely on Kindle, but they're out there in shops and uh, online. Um, And I I always have tried to write things that take an alternative perspective. So my first book was about the future of reproduction. So looking at ideas from the history and the future of human reproduction, um, but also lots of very strange and interesting animal species. The second one was looking at health and disease in India. Um, And then Silk has been my third. I'm thinking of some ideas for my next book, um, but um, they will definitely be. I'm thinking of one that's going to bring together um, our knowledge of human disease, but also anthropology and the human body with a very feminist angle. (laughs) So that's what I'm thinking of next.
1: Look forward to hearing more about it. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at nickri_gordon. That's n i c k r i g o r d o n. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on uh, Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We hope you're still to listening to Asian Review Books podcast. We're on all of your podcast apps: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher rate us recommend us share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in around and about asia next week join us for an interview with um with Jyoti saikia author of the quest for modern assam a history 1942 to 2000 but before then arati thank you so much for coming on the show today thank you so much nick